your passages in all of the Bible, I suppose outside of the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments and the 23rd Psalm and the parable of the prodigal son, everyone would be able to, to point out right away that one of the greatest stories Jesus ever told is recorded in the 10th chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. It has a lot to do with the mission of the church, and it has a lot to do with the life of a Christian. Let me begin reading from verse 25 of the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 10, from J.B. Phillips' paraphrase. Jesus shows the relevance of the law to actual living. Then one of the experts in the law stood up to test him and said, Master, what must I do to be sure of eternal life? What does the law say and what is your reading taught you, said Jesus? The law says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself, he replied. Quite right, said Jesus. Do that and you will live. But the man wanting to justify himself continued, But who is my neighbor? And Jesus gave him the following story in reply. A man was once on his way down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell into the hands of bandits who stripped off his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead. It so happened that a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. A Levite also came on the scene, and when he saw him, he too passed by on the other side. But then a Samaritan traveler came along to the place where the man was lying, and at the sight of him, he was touched with pity. He went across to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put him on his own mule, and he brought him to an inn, and he did what he could for him. The next day he took out two pieces of silver and gave it to the innkeeper with the words, Look after him, will you? I will pay you back anything more than this that you spend when I come through here on my return. Now, which of these three seems to you to have been a neighbor to the bandit's victim? The man who gave him practical sympathy, the lawyer replied. Then you go and give the same, returned Jesus. And as they continued their journey, Jesus came to a village, and a woman called Martha welcomed him to her house. She had a sister by the name of Mary who settled down at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he had to say. But Martha was very worried about her elaborate preparations, and she burst in saying, Lord, don't you mind that my sister has left me to do everything all by myself? Tell her to get up and help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, my dear, you are worried and bothered about a great many things. Only a few things are really needed, perhaps only one. Mary has chosen the most important thing, and you must not take that away from her. Amen. May God bless to our hearts this reading from his word. Jesus sought to press this home on every occasion. Three times in his public ministry, he was asked by people 
What must I do to inherit eternal life? You remember the rich young ruler came to him and asked him that question. Now Jesus pushes people back toward a consideration of the law of God and here a summary of that law. Let it be said in the very beginning, no man has ever kept that law that we know of other than Jesus himself. All of us need his grace. We need the atonement which he has made for our sins on the cross. But here look at a practical application of Christian love of which Jesus speaks. He had been teaching and it is important to remember something of the background. In chapter 9 of the Gospel according to Luke, he has gone through Samaria. And the Samaritans have not been very cooperative. In fact, they've been just downright hateful. So much so that uh, they did not want Jesus to go through their village. And James uh, and John uh, came to Jesus with the suggestion that he call down fire from heaven and destroy the Samaritans. They didn't like them anyway. Uh, Jesus had, uh, it seems, a flair for making the Samaritans the heroes of a great many of his stories. Uh, way back in the time of Nehemiah, when Nehemiah had returned to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, he found that some of the Jews who had stayed there had intermingled with foreigners and married them. And so he wanted purity of race, which was a commandment of God, but these people were offended and insulted by what Nehemiah did, and as a result of it, they set up their own place of worship, and they recognized the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Law of Moses. They recognized certain of the prophets, and uh, they looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. We know this because of the woman at the well's interview with Jesus. You remember she was a woman of Samaria. And she said to Jesus, we're looking forward to the time when the Messiah will come. Because he, when he comes, he will show us all things. So they were looking forward to the coming of Christ. Now, here Jesus is in a setting with Jewish people. And all of a sudden, a man desiring to put Jesus to the test, to test his orthodoxy, said to Jesus, Master, and he says this, and I think in a, a way that would tell you that he is uh, insolent, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said this, the scripture says, in order to trap Jesus, to test him. Well, Jesus puts the question back to him, he knows that he is a master of the law, that he has read the Old Testament scriptures, that he has committed much of it to memory. So Jesus says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? What would you say? And the man said, well, in the law it says that I am to love the, the Lord my God with all of my heart, that is through all of the emotions of my heart, with all of my mind, with all of my soul, with all of my strength. Does anyone here claim to love the Lord that much? And he added a fine verse, I believe, from Leviticus. My neighbor as myself. Well, said Jesus, 
this do, and thou shalt live. And then lawyer-like, he comes back with the question which he thinks will ensnare Jesus. And he says, and uh, who is my neighbor? In other words, he wants Jesus to tell him who he is to love. He thinks he is supposed to hate Samaritans especially. He thinks he is supposed to hate a lot of other people. He thinks that his love is to extend only to those of his own inner circle. And so Jesus related this matchless story. We have chosen often to refer to it as a parable. But nowhere in Luke is it said to be a parable. And it may very well have been something that occurred that Jesus knew about and which his disciples had referred to. It's interesting that when the word Samaritan is used, there is almost a cringe when the word Samaritan is used because Jews hated the Samaritans so much. It was a racial problem, very tense racial problem. And yet Jesus begins to speak about it. We always think of a Samaritan just automatically as a good person, don't we? We do as a result of this account here. Well, Jesus begins to tell him who his neighbor is. And so he relates this incident. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was notoriously infested with bandits and robbers. Jericho was a great commercial city. It was rich. And there was a lot of money there. There would have been salesmen who would have been traveling back and forth from Jerusalem, which was the city of religion, to Jericho, which was the city of commerce. And so this event uh, could have well taken place, and many of the people might have been talking about it. Jesus relates it here. In 1942, the BBC uh, radio network did a, a dramatization of this story. And I like it very much because the, the British have a flair for detective stories anyway. And they did this in the form of a detective story. And I think you can remember it, especially the young people, if I tell it to you that way. The BBC said that a crime had taken place on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho and so Scotland Yard had been called out, and they went out with their mobile crime laboratory, and they went to the scene of the crime. And they looked around, and they saw footprints. And they saw some sandals, and whoever had manufactured the sandals had put his slogan on them, you know, like you do on automobile tires. You have uh, things that are printed there. Well, on the, the footprint in the sand, they saw a sandal that, had left in the sand the, the, the inscription, what's yours is mine, I'll take it. So they deduced that these footprints were the footprints of the robbers and that their philosophy of life was to go and take from other people. 
Now, we could stop and study about the robbers profitably for a good while because they seem to be neglected in all of the studies of this story of the Good Samaritan. Maybe the robbers came from a deprived background. I don't know. Maybe they watched too much violence on television. For whatever reason, they decided that they were going to get along in life by taking from other people, and so this was their philosophy. What's yours is mine. I'll take it. And that's the way they lived. And they picked up those footprints in the sand. Then there was a second sandal that they saw the, the print of in the sand. It was sort of turned up at the toe. It was a clergy-looking sandal. And uh, they reasoned that this was the Levite and the priest. And they looked on the motto that had been left in the sand there, and it said, What's mine is mine. I'll keep it. I'm not going to get involved. And you know, we could stop and think for a good long while about that philosophy of life, too. It really is a disgrace that here a hated, heretical Samaritan is going to come along and help a Jew. When Jews go by and leave the Jew lying there, a Levite. Son of the law, a priest, going up to teach all about God. And they walk along the Jericho Road, and they look, and they see this Jew who had been beaten up and was left there dying. One of the men is so finicky, the priest, that he doesn't, he, he sees him at a distance, but he turns his head. He can't stand the sight of blood. He's going to a meeting of the community chairs. And they're going to talk about how to help travelers who get in trouble on the road. And he can't be late to that committee meeting. And so he rushes on by. He can't look at him. The Levite, he too reasons that what's mine is mine, I'll keep it. And he goes over and he looks at this poor soul and body uh, bleeding. And uh, maybe he started to give him a track. But then he thought, I better not touch him. And so the Levite goes on, too. He can't be ceremonially unclean as a result of, of touching this, this Jew. Now remember, they are both Jews. The Levite is a Jew. The priest is a Jew. The poor beaten man on the side of the road is a Jew. And then says Jesus, there came a certain Samaritan. Oh, when he said that word, Samaritan. All he talks about is Samaritans. Every time I come here, he preaches on race. That's all he knows. He's a Samaritan lover. That's what they said. Or something to that effect. They were really, really uptight immediately when Jesus brings this up. Well, it's something we've got to face. 
Jesus was teaching them that this Samaritan, and they thought the villain was now about to come on the stage, that this Samaritan was going to be a villain, but instead he turns out to be the hero. Now the detectives from Scotland Yard who came out and picked up the footprints of this foreign sandal noticed on the slogan that, that was on the bottom of those sandals a different motto from the other two. That motto said, what's mine is yours, I'll share it. And this Samaritan saw the man, stopped, went over to him. He didn't worry about whether or not there were robbers lurking around waiting for him. He threw caution to the winds at this point because he realized this man was dying, that if he didn't stop and help him, he would die. Maybe he unwound his turban, he took it off. He had to get his bandage from somewhere and bandaged up the man's wounds. He poured in the wine, the oil to make it more comfortable. Then he lifted the man and put him up on his own beast. And he walked along leading the donkey until they got to the inn. And he went in, got a room for him, put him in bed, nursed him all night long, stayed up with him. Remember, he's a Samaritan, and that man who's bleeding and wounded and hurt is a Jew, and yet he stays up all night long helping him. Then when morning comes and he has to continue on his journey, he goes to the innkeeper, and he says something that has fascinated me for the years that I've studied this. He says, I'm going to leave you some money. Take care of him. And if it costs any more than this, when I come back this way again, I'll pay you. I expect that innkeeper felt that any Samaritan who would do that for a Jew could be trusted. that any Samaritan who could do that for a Jew could be trusted. Maybe he was a traveling salesman who had been there again and again and he knew him. He just made part payment at the inn, but the innkeeper knew that he could trust this man to pay him the rest of it. Well, when Jesus had finished his story, He said to this man who had tried to trap him by asking him who he really was to love, who was to be his neighbor. He said, now which one of these people, these three people, the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, which one was neighbor to the Jew that was beaten up and wounded and bleeding? And he knew full well who it was. He said it was the man who took pity and who helped him. 
Well, Jesus said to him, you go do the same thing. You go do the same thing. Now, that kind of Christian faith is costly. Now, I have a little seven-year-old, and I'm not going to say who he is because he's gotten too much publicity already. But the other night we were reading this story, and he asked some interesting questions, which uh, a lot of adults ask. He said, uh, what's a Samaritan? I told him about Samaritans. He said, uh, what's that other guy? I said, Levite? He said, yeah. I told him what a Levite was. And he said, uh, was a Samaritan a Christian? I said, well, he did a Christian deed. I don't believe that we're saved by works. I believe it's possible for a person to be a good humanist and help you out on the road and not have surrendered his life to the Lord. And you can't isolate one deed one way or another, either good or evil. But certainly what he did was something that was compatible with Christian action. It's a very good question to ask. But this man had already shown that he hadn't lived up to this, and neither have any of us. And neither are we likely to, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit being at work in our lives. And I'll illustrate this. Two years ago, it, uh, oh, it's been longer than that now. It's been about four years ago. I went to Minneapolis to this uh, uh, United States Congress on Evangelism, and Keith Miller spoke. Keith Miller has a way of, of waking you up. And uh, Keith Miller spoke, and he, he spoke about the inner pilgrimage of a Christian. He told about a group in Austin, Texas, of people who had met at 6.30 in the morning for the purpose of talking about their Christian discipleship and putting it into practice day by day with all of the ramifications of the commitment of being a Christian. He told about a certain man, and he said, I have permission to tell his story. And he said that in their meetings that they had, they agreed when they met together that they would keep secret the things that were revealed there and that they would pray about problems that existed in their families. They would discuss their own attitudes uh, toward problems in their business and that they could trust one another and would not try to hurt one another but take the scriptures and apply them to their lives. Well, he said there was a man by the name of Walter and that he was a successful home builder, a developer of residential areas. He had grown up in an orphanage. And he had known what it was like to be deprived of a great deal of things in life. And then suddenly he had begun as a result of a commitment of his life to Jesus Christ to take seriously his discipleship. And one day when they met at 6.30 and they read the Bible and they started their period of prayer and then they had their discussion, Walter said this, and I want to read his words so that I'm exact. He said, Hey, you guys, I woke up at 4 o'clock this morning, and I couldn't go back to sleep. He said, I was praying, and I discovered an amazing thing. 
Now, Keith Miller said he was an old Southern boy, and he didn't mean to be offensive when he said this. It just came out. He said, I discovered an amazing thing. I love niggers. And having been raised in the South, he didn't see anything in Congress uh, about what he was saying. And besides, when he said it, there were tears in his eyes. He said, listen. He said, if I love them, I guess God would want me to do something about them, wouldn't he? And everyone said, we suppose so. Well, he said, I'd like for you to pray for me so that I'll know what I can do to help Christ with the race situation. And then he added something that we seldom add. He said, in our town. I want to help Christ with the race situation in our town. We always want to help Christ with the race situation in some other town. He said, in our town. And so they prayed about it. And the next week, this crazy guy came back to this meeting, this Bible study prayer meeting group. And he said, listen, he said, you know what's happened to me? He said, I've been put on the human rights committee in our community, big city like Austin. And he said, I'm on the board of the National Realtors Association. And he said, we've been asked nationally to adopt an open housing law. And I want to push for it here. Do you think Christ would have me do that? And they all said, yeah, we think you ought to go ahead. Be good for you. You do, you do that. Push it. <laughs> well, uh, he went around his community, the city, and he checked with the realtors that were there about housing and the availability of it. And do you know what happened? Not one single one of them agreed with him. Well, he decided on his own that he was going to practice what he was supposed to preach and to live. So you know what he did? He started trying to practice it. And Keith Miller said that he met with him after the first six months had gone by. And he said, Walter, how are you coming with your practicing of your love toward the, the blacks and this situation. He said, well, old buddy, I've lost $100,000. $100,000. But he said, I think this is what Jesus wants me to do. And he said, I'm going to do it. He stayed on that human rights board trying to practice his Christian faith he met a black man who was a professional man who needed a home. He had children. He wanted to help him. They found a house that cost $25,000. It wasn't too far from where Walter lived. And so he told the black man, he said, I'll help you get the permission to move into that community. And he began to work at it and got turned down flat. The black man went to the bank and tried to borrow the money, and money was tight, and he couldn't borrow. So Walter went to the bank himself, and he said, uh, you know, I know that man who's trying to move down the street from me. And he said, I'd like to help him. 
And the bank said, well, we're sorry. The money is so tight we can't, we can't lend him the 25000 And Walter said, I thought you'd say that, so I'm going to sign his note. And he said, I'll give you my note for $25,000 and don't tell him where it came from. He got back to his office and he got a telephone call. You know where the call came from? It was the Race Relations Committee. And you know what they said? One of the directors said, hey, Walter, I hate to tell you this, but a guy has turned you in for being a racist. Some guy down the street from you that's been trying to buy a house in your neighborhood. And he says you're trying to keep him out. Keith Miller said he asked him, he said, well, what did you think about that, Walter? And Walter swore and thought that black ingrate, look what I tried to do for him. And then he said, I prayed some more about it. And then he said, I thought, we've got a real job on our hands. It's hard to love people that we haven't really loved, and it's hard for them to trust us and to love us. And he said, we've got to pray hard, and we've got to work hard, and Jesus is going to help me do it. Now, Keith Miller said that the story has not ended yet. And it didn't end up on a happy note, losing $100,000, not a happy experience. Being told that you're a racist when you've tried to be helpful isn't a happy experience. And yet Walter was really trying to put his Christian faith into practice in this way. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, with all thy soul, with all thy strength and thy neighbor as thyself, and who is thy neighbor? Anyone who needs your love is your neighbor. Anyone who needs your love is your neighbor. You say, that really hurts. It does. We haven't lived up to it either, any of us. And we need to live up to it. Paul wrote a lot about it. In a part of the Bible called the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, he told us there what love was really like. Now, I'm not saying that you substitute good deeds for salvation, and don't you ever tell anybody I said that. But I'm telling you that when you are saved and you belong to Jesus Christ, you've got a tremendous obligation laid upon you. And the Holy Spirit has got to see that that old nature of yours is crucified and that Christ is loving people through you. And that's painful, day-by-day business. And we're not to use the idea that deeds are substitutes for loving him as a person. That's why I went on to read the rest of that portion of Scripture where Martha and Mary are how they got into that little domestic flat. And Mary had been sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to what he had to say and loving him. 
and knowing what he was going through and trying to learn from him. And Martha, wanting to have all kind of elaborate things prepared for him, came fussing to Jesus and said to him, Why don't you make my sister help me with the work? And Jesus said to her, and it's very beautiful, he says, Martha, 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 my dear, it's a very affectionate term. Why are you fussing about so many things? We don't need all this stuff that you're doing. Now Mary's trying to listen to me. And don't take that away from her. And there again, this is not a substitute for deeds of love and mercy, but it simply is a proposition of loving him and of putting first things first. How many of us have had the experience of going to some person's home when they've cooked everything and they've cleaned everything, and boy, they can't wait till you get out of the house and they say, man, I don't want to go through this again. I'm glad it's over with. Well, what kind of company is that? I hate to inflict misery on people who go to uh, so much trouble that you can't enjoy your visit. Well, I think this is something of what's happening here. Mary was learning from what Jesus had to say. And Luke put this immediately following this story about good deeds so that we would put the deeds and the love together. There was a meeting held by Dr. Walter Hearn, who is a layman, biochemist, and a very fine Bible teacher, and he had spoken very movingly one day on this same passage of Scripture and in the showing of love. And when it was finished, one very pious little old lady uh, who was seated up on the front, none of them are up here, up on the front seat came up and uh, said, Oh, Dr. Hearn, my cup runneth over today. What am I going to do about it? And Dr. Hearn said, Go outside and slosh it on somebody. <laughs> and that's the way we want to do with what we learned from these two lessons. Let us stand in prayer. Oh God, our Heavenly Father, it's easy to talk about being a Christian. But when we break the huddle and we go out and line up and get ready to put into motion the play which we have, someone is apt to get hurt. And so we pray that thou wilt keep us from sparing ourselves and from substituting getting together in a meeting, even in church, for the living out in our day-by-day -day life our responsibilities to show the love which you have shown to all men. We pray, our Father, that thou wilt grant that the Holy Spirit may so grip us that our unruly nature, which is so prone to reject people that are unlovely, that we do not show the love of Jesus as much as we should, that that old nature may die more and more, and that that new nature which the Holy Spirit has brought into our hearts through the new birth may grant that we may reach out showing to others Jesus Christ. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and our guide, be and abide with us all both now and forevermore.